Amen. Let's start in Mark chapter 11 this evening. Mark chapter 11 is the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. His disciples heard him when he said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Next morning they come by and they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter calls it to remembrance and, and there's an implied question. There really wasn't anything that he asked, but the question is implied as to how did this happen. Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now Jesus gives us what um, uh, may be, in my opinion, is the most concise description of how faith is to be used and how faith operates. We understand from the principle that he identified in verse 23 that faith is speaking from your heart, believing that those words that you speak shall come to pass. So the principle of faith, where the Bible says the just shall live by faith, living by faith then would be living according to your confession. Understanding that your confession rules everything. Your words control everything. Now notice in that uh, verse 23, notice the phrase where he says, and shall not doubt in his heart. We could spend a long time going through and looking at what the Bible talks about the heart of man, but he's talking about the inner man. When he says, shall not doubt in his heart, he's, he's specifically identifying that we should not yield the force of our spirit toward doubt or toward anything that contradicts God's word. So he's talking about speaking. Speaking words of doubt, I'm sorry, speaking words of faith and refusing to speak words of doubt. Now, when the Bible talks about not, not doubting in your heart, it's talking about the words that we speak and not the, think, the thoughts that we think. For example, you remember in uh, Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is petitioned by Jairus to come lay his hands on his daughter who's at the point of death. On the way, the woman with issue of blood interrupts Jesus. She receives her healing, and they take some time to, for her to tell the story and so forth. And you may remember that uh, they, as soon as Jesus finished speaking to the woman with issue of blood, commending her for her faith that received, her faith was identified by the things that she said. She began to say, after she heard of Jesus, she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Jesus is commending her faith and, and hearing the particulars of what happened in her life. And somebody comes from Jairus' house and delivers some terrible news. The messenger says, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter is dead. Now, remember what Jesus did? Jesus immediately spoke to him and said, be not afraid, only believe. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, don't think bad thoughts. He didn't say, try to keep your mind steady. He simply said, be not afraid, only believe. He understands, and he, Jesus, understands, and Jairus knows from what we see taking place so far that Jesus is saying, don't change your words. Don't speak according to the feelings that you may be feeling. Don't speak words of worry. Don't speak your fears. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. 
I'm sorry, it's Matthew chapter 6. After Jesus is, this is uh, Jesus uh, speaking what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling them about their attitude of forgiveness, how necessary that is. He speaks to them about fasting and about doing it in secret and not in public. Again, he's talking about their attitude toward fasting. And then he talks about their attitude toward money. He talks to them about laying up treasures in heaven rather than treasures here on the earth. He concludes by saying no man can serve two masters. You can't serve money and God both. You're going to have to make one on top. One the first priority of your life and the other will be a lower priority. So then he says after speaking to them about their attitudes toward certain things. Verse 25 Jesus said therefore I say unto you take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. They sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now notice he's identifying that they have little faith. Then it says in verse 31, the conclusion, Therefore take no thought, saying, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, or take therefore, no thought for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now back in verse 30, he identifies that they're people of little faith. What makes them people of little faith? What is it that Jesus knows about this group of people that he's talking to that identifies or that that enables him to correctly identify that they're men and women of little faith because of the things they're worried about? Because of the things they're worried about. He starts in this concluding piece, section of Scripture. Take no thought for the morrow. Take no thought for the food you're going to eat. Take no thought for the raiment or the clothing you're going to wear. Take no thought about whether God will provide for you. Take no thought saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? This is a picture of doubting in your heart. Letting your words be determined not by what God says, not by what the word of God has provided for us, the information the word has provided for us, but to speak according to the circumstances. And he says God will even clothe people of little faith. But there's one prerequisite, there's one requirement that he makes on them. And that is, take no thought saying. In other words, don't speak worry. Don't speak fear. Look with me over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Jesus had a lot to say about not worrying. And he always identified that as a part of living by faith. Living by the principle, the understanding that God's word spoken from our heart will come to pass. But one of the, the biggest difficulties, the biggest obstacles, 
one of the great hindrances to faith is the sin of worry. Peter says, we'll start in verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Peter said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Now the word exalt means to lift up in the sense of honoring you. So he says, God says, or Peter says by the Holy Ghost that God will lift us up. He will exalt us in, honor, in a place of honor. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Now notice he says humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and humbling yourself has something to do with casting your care over on the Lord. I know a lot of people criticize the so-called faith message. I tend to agree with Brother Hagin. I don't think there is such thing as the faith message. I think it's just the word of God. Because wherever the word of God is preached, faith is a result. But there are many people out there that have criticized the so-called faith message. And they have used in their criticism some misguided idea that we're trying to demand something of God, exalting ourselves against God. When in fact, humbling yourself is indeed accepting what the word says no matter what you feel about it or what other people say. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is accepting what God says rather than what it looks like to you and me. Rather than to operate according to the thoughts that are a result of the enemy trying to bring attacks against us. Thoughts of unworthiness, thoughts of failure, thoughts of sin. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God is accepting what God said no matter what it feels like. No matter how we see ourselves, no matter how other people see us. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, lift you up in honor in due time. Casting all of your care upon him for he careth for you. Cast, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. So casting your care over on the Lord as a part of humbling yourself into the mighty hand of God is part of living by faith too. He says your enemy, the devil, your adversary, walks about as a roaring lion, doesn't say he is a lion, just says he makes a lot of noise walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom the devil therefore resists steadfast in the faith, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Let me read verse 7, casting your care over on him, for he careth for you. Let me read this to you from the Amplified. Casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on him, for he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. Isn't that good? Casting the whole of your care over on him. Now, folks, if the Bible is telling us that this is the way that we live by faith, if the Bible is telling us that living by faith is speaking God's word and refusing to speak anything to the contrary, no matter what thoughts of doubt have come to our minds, no matter what fears the enemy tries to, to or does use, to try to shake us and make us speak contrary to God's word. Living by faith is living carefree. God intends for us to live a carefree life, a carefree existence. And the only way we can do that is by casting our cares over on him. Now notice it doesn't say we don't have cares. It doesn't say that living by faith is being without cares. 
it says living by faith is casting all your cares over on him. Look with me to Philippians chapter 4. This is what Peter had to say about it. Let's look and see what Paul had to say. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now certainly the Bible tells us something to do with our minds. Romans chapter 12 tells us to renew our minds to the truth of the word. But even so, it's not our thoughts that govern us. The principle of faith says that it's our words that govern us. So no matter what our thoughts are, and this is good news because you don't have to have a fully renewed mind for faith to work. Faith will work when you speak God's word from your heart, even during the process of, of renewing your mind and gaining information and meditating in the word to make it a part of your, your spirit. Your faith will still work even before you get to the fully grown or fully renewed mind condition. Now I want, you to, I want to read to you verse 6 again from the Amplified. It does just what the title suggests. It amplifies it. Do not fret or have any anxiety about anything. But in every circumstance and in everything, by prayer and petition, definite request, with thanksgiving, continue to make your wants known unto God. Don't be anxious and don't fret about anything. Don't allow worry to dictate your words. Don't allow fear to dictate what you say. Don't allow doubt to determine what you speak. This is the same thing Jesus is talking about in Mark eleven twenty three, and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not carry the cares of this life, but rather shall roll them over on the Lord. And when we pray, we need to pray in faith, expecting that God hears and answers our prayer. And since we believe that he hears and answers our prayer, there's nothing left to do except praise him. There's nothing left except to offer him thanksgiving. Now, when Paul writes these things to the Philippians, the Philippians, Christians, are in various stages of spiritual growth and development, certainly. They would be just like people that would hear these things today. And they would probably want to know if Paul is living up to his own preaching. Well, let's look back at the first time that Paul was with the Philippians in Acts chapter 14. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16. It tells us about how that we, they found that Philippi, the city of Philippi, was the place that God wanted them to go in a very supernatural way. They tried to go other places. They tried to go into Asia, into the area of Ephesus. But the timing wasn't right on that, and so God wouldn't let them go. God forbid them to go. Then they tried to go into Mysia, which would be another direction, the opposite direction. And the Spirit of God forbade them to go there too. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how the Spirit of God forbid them. But we have to understand that if the number one way that the Holy Ghost leads us 
is by the inward witness. They had something, some kind of check, some kind of hesitation in their spirit, in their heart. That kept them from going to the places that they thought would be the right way to go. Which way do we go? Well, Paul looks at the, the map. He looks at the directions that are available to him. And he's probably trying to go to the place where there's the greatest population, which would have been in Ephesus in the region or, or the direction of Ephesus. I'm sorry, Asia was where Ephesus was part of. And so he's probably just using good common sense. If God wants us to reach the most people, we should go where the most people are. But that didn't sit right. Somehow or another, the Holy Ghost made him aware that that wasn't the plan of God. So he tries somewhere else. He points in the direction of Mysia. Same thing. He's saying, well, if God doesn't want us to go into Asia, then surely he wants us to go into Mysia. Again, that would have been one of the heavily, more heavily populated places that they could go from where they were. But somehow or another, that didn't set, set right with their hearts either. And so finally, they came to a place where they bedded down for the night. And at night, during the night sometime, Paul had a dream, a vision or some type, where he saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Well, the Bible says that, that uh, Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia. So they go into Philippi, and they wound up casting the devil out of a little girl that's known as a fortune teller. And when they cast the devil out of her, she can't make money for her masters anymore. And so they raise a stink and have Paul and Silas thrown in jail. And notice in verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Now, folks, this jailer becomes part of the church at Philippi. So when Paul writes this letter back to the Philippians and says, Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't fret about anything. He knows that there are a lot of people that witnessed how he handled difficulties, how they handled the difficulty of being thrown in jail. And remember, they came to Philippi in a very supernatural way. God had to show them in a dream where he wanted them to be. Now, a lot of times we think, or many people think, I guess, that when God does something spectacular like that, something out of the ordinary, something more than just the leading of the Holy Ghost by the inward witness, a lot of people think that that means that God is going to clear the path for them in such a supernatural and mighty way that there's not going to be any trouble, there's not going to be any opposition, there won't be any problems whatsoever. But a lot of times the spectacular leadings of the Lord are because there are going to be difficulties and obstacles. There is going to be trouble. And you need to be able to look back and say, well, I know that I know that we're supposed to be here because look at how God led us here. That seems to be the case in Paul's situation, Paul and Silas's situation here in Acts chapter 16. So they've been beaten for getting a little girl delivered from dem uh, demonic possession. They're beaten. They're thrown in jail. 
How are, they, how are they going to handle these things? That would have been a perfect time for them to have a pity party. That would have been a perfect time for them to complain to the Lord about how unfair this is and how they've been wrongly mistreated. But it seems like they're carefree. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises, and the prisoners heard them. Now, let me ask you a question, folks. If that was you in jail, what would you be praying for? I'd be praying to get out. I'd be pleading my case before the Lord. I'd be saying, Lord, you know that we came here because of the dream, the vision of the man from Macedonia. We're in Philippi because it's the chief city of Macedonia. You know why we're here. You know you sent us here. You didn't send us here to spend all of our time in jail. That wouldn't make any sense. No need to travel all the way across the world to go to jail. They could have stayed in Jerusalem and been put in jail many times for the things that they were preaching. So they reasoned this out. They said, this can't be the fullness of your plan. This can't be what you want for us for the entirety of the time that we could and should be preaching the gospel to the people of this city. I'd be praying to get out, wouldn't you? I would consider there to be good foundation to trust God to get me out because of the reason and the way that he sent us to this city. Well, it says the prisoners heard them. They prayed and sang praises and the prisoners heard them so that suddenly there was a mighty earthquake. Here they are, careful for nothing, but in everything, in every circumstance, in every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, they're, let their, they're letting their requests be made known unto God. And the other prisoners heard just exactly that. They heard them praying. They heard them talking to God. They heard them singing songs of praise and thanksgiving for whatever they've asked God for. And suddenly there's a great earthquake. Everybody's chains fell off. Everybody's hands and feet were released from the stocks and the bonds that they were in. Prison doors swing wide open. And nobody moves. The fact that there was not a rush of prisoners running through the, the open gates tells me that what they heard Paul and Silas say and what they heard them sing had everything to do with the God that they serve. Even the jailer, when he springs in, when he finds out everybody's there, he's ready to take his life because if he doesn't, then the soldiers will take his life for him but he hears Paul cry out saying we're all here what does the guy do now it says he was asleep was he asleep for the whole of the time that Paul and Silas are praying and singing praises well since it says suddenly these things happened after they started singing the implication sure seems to me that the guy didn't even hear all the things that they were saying didn't even hear the songs that they were singing. The earthquake's what woke him up, not the singing. But he knows enough about Paul and Silas and what they're there for and what they're accused of and what they're really doing in the city so that when he comes to, into Paul and Silas's jail cell, he falls down on his face and says, what do I have to do to get saved? Now, folks, if this was a natural earthquake, just a normal run-of-the-mill earthquake, it would have done destruction rather than just open people's prison doors and for chains and stocks to fall off their feet, hands and feet. And this jailer knows enough about them to know that they're there 
preaching salvation because that's what he comes to seek. Any God, I'm sure he imagined that any God that can open prison doors and set people free from the chains and the bonds that they were put in, that's a God worth serving. So he says, what must we do to be saved? Now, why in the world would the jailer point to and request anything regarding salvation if he didn't already know that that's the message that they were preaching? And in line with the message that they were preaching, in my thinking, they had to have been talking to God about being free. Either way, when Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, be careful for nothing, I wonder how many of them are thinking about when Paul and Silas were in jail. You know the story got out and the story was publicized to great degree so that all the Philippians that made up the church made up those that became part of the family of God during the time that Paul and Silas' ministry took place there. They all know the story. So when Paul says, be careful for nothing, don't be anxious or fret about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. They know he's lived this out in his own life. This isn't just some theory that somebody's preaching that you should do, but they don't do it themselves. He's showing this is what living by faith is. Now, there was plenty of opportunity for them to worry in prison, wasn't there? There was plenty of opportunity, especially for Silas, to question Paul and say, I thought you saw a vision about us coming here. I thought your vision was a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. We haven't met any man from Macedonia. We just found a little girl that was possessed of the devil. We never get to have any information whatsoever if Paul and Silas ever located that man in Paul's dream saying, come over here and help us. If so, we never see it identified in the scripture. But this would have been a perfect time for Silas to say, well, surely you missed it on this one, Paul. Whatever you thought was the reason we shouldn't have gone to Ephesus, maybe we should have gone there anyhow. Or the same thing for Mysia. But you know that if God sent us here in a supernatural dream or vision or something like that, jail wouldn't have been the result of what we were supposed to do in this city. They may have even had those thoughts run through their mind. But they stayed with what they knew. Silas had enough confidence in Paul so that when Paul said, this is the dream, this is the vision that I had, he was on board with it just as much as if he had had the vision himself or if he had dreamed the dream himself. Be careful for nothing. Don't fret. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, in everything, in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. The word dismayed means broken down or confounded. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. 
Folks, worry is just fear trying to come out of your mouth. Doubt is just fear trying to come out of your mouth. But you decide what comes out of your mouth. You decide, not the circumstance, certainly not the devil. You decide what you say. Now, folks, I've, I've never really, personally, in my personal life, I've never really had much occasion to worry. I've never had any trouble putting worry away. I credit that to the fact that I was born again at a young age, just a boy, just before my uh, seventh birthday. And so I always just knew that God was living on the inside of me somehow or another. And as a result, I always had a belief that things would work out. And I carried that all throughout my high school years, even up into my 20s. But where I really started having to fight a battle with fear or worry specifically was after we started the church. Because now I'm not just responsible for me. I'm responsible for the people that are part of this congregation. And it was one of the hardest things in the world for me to release worry and to overcome worry when I knew the people in my church were going through some difficulties and hardships. I'd had enough experience with walking by faith so that I expected that anything that I had to face for myself, I could just take the word and put it into practice and it, eventually it's going to come to pass. It's going to come out just the way that I believed and spoke. But I didn't have that same confidence in the people that I was preaching to. And so I agonized for, for several years. I agonized over people going through problems and I began to carry their burdens and the Lord really had to deal with me about that. The Lord really had to deal with me. And, and frankly, he dealt with me kind of roughly to begin with. And it came down to this. He said, he told me that the way I was acting demonstrated that I didn't believe the power of the word that I was preaching. He told me if the word that I was preaching was the truth then those that heard and acted on the word would be able to overcome in their situations just like I had confidence to in my own life. And the Lord continued. This wasn't all in one setting. But he continued to talk to me about trusting him because the people of this church were his, not mine. And it took a while. But I finally came to the point where I just said, okay, Lord, I do trust you. I do trust your word. And so I'm just going to pray for people's eyes to be opened. Pray that they'll be strengthened with might in their inner man. So that they'd know what to do. Know what the word says about their situation. And that they would be strengthened by the Holy Ghost. To put it in practice and overcome whatever obstacles or attacks they were under. And there was such a likeness. There was such a sense of inner peace that started coming over me. And I quit worrying. I learned to quit worrying. Now, it was tough. First couple of days I tried, it was tough. The Bible says, cast the whole of your care over on him once and for all. But there would be times early on in the first couple of days of me dealing with this situation where I'd wake, wake up wide awake in the middle of the night. And fear would be sitting on my, on my chest. 
And I'd be reminded of some problem or some situation that uh, a church member was going through. And there was a great temptation to worry. But I reminded myself of what the word said. I knew these things for myself. I was easy. It was easy for me to put away worry concerning me and my own problems and the things that I was facing or in the middle of. But I'd be so tempted to worry about other people and their situations. But I'd remember what the word said. I'd go back to doing what the Bible said. I'd take it back to the Lord and say, Lord, I cast this over on you, and here it is trying to come back. You take it. I don't want it. Folks, troubles have a single handle. Any trouble you'll ever face has a single handle. What I mean by that is only one person can hold it and carry it. If you're going to carry it, God can't. But if you'll give him the handle on it, then he'll carry it and you won't have to. And so it took me two or three nights going through the same thing over and over again. Then it started getting easier. Within a matter of a couple of weeks, it was like I never had worried about anybody. Doesn't mean everybody's problems turned around and changed instantly. But we did start seeing some things change. And luckily, thankfully, just like the Bible says, it became a strong point rather than a weakness. It became something where I began to rejoice when I'd find out people were going through some difficulty because I knew that you learned to have confidence in God by going through the hard places. Folks, you'll learn more in hard places than you'll ever learn when things are easy. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying pray for hard places, but you won't have to. They'll come whether you pray for them or not. But it really became an issue for me where I, I was able to count it all joy. Not just when I faced something, knowing that God's word would be proven true. But I began to count it joy for other people too. And that helped me to pray for them in a way that would really strengthen them and bring about a positive result. Worry doesn't do anything except put you in torment. Brother Hagin used to say, I don't know if he originated this or not, but he used to say, worry is like a rocking chair. It'll keep you busy, but you don't get anywhere. So doubt is just worry trying to come out of your mouth. Doubt is just fear trying to come out of your mouth. But thank God we've got scriptures like this. Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. If God's with you and his word's true, what is there to fear? not a thing in the world be not dismayed don't be broken down don't be confounded for i am thy god folks if god is who he says he is in his word what difference does it make what the circumstances are if circumstances are pleasant then you can walk in the peace of god straightway if circumstances are difficult you can count it all joy and see god make his word true and bring it to pass in your life if God's with you, what difference does it make what you're facing? Well, I feel so helpless. God said, I'll help you. I feel so weak. God said, I'll strengthen you. But I feel so unworthy. God said, I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Folks, those things, those categories that are identified in verse 10 of Isaiah 41 cover pretty much anything and everything we'll ever face. There are some situations where we'll need to be strengthened. He said he'd strengthen us. 
There are some things that will need to be helped. He said he'll help us. There are some things that the devil will try to make us feel unworthy or try to say that we are not candidates for the word of God working for us. And God said, I'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. What is there to fear if God is on our side? What is there to be afraid of if he's with us? What reason, therefore, is there to speak anything except what his word says? Because his word is true and he always watches over his word to perform it. Casting the whole of your care over on him once and for all. May take you a little while to get to that once and for all. But once you get there, your life will change. Once you get to that once and for all thing, when the devil tries to bring fear or worry or doubt back to you, you can just simply say, you're talking to the wrong one, Mr. Devil. I don't have that anymore. I gave that over unto the Lord. So if you need to talk to somebody about that, go talk to him. Thank God for the privilege we have to be carefree. Thank God that living by faith is living carefree. Because we trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that because you are with us, there is nothing to fear. Thank you, Father, that because you are on our side and you are our God, there's nothing to be broken down about. There's nothing to be dismayed about. There's no circumstance that could ever come against us that changes the truth of your word. When things look good, we can rejoice. When things don't look so good, we can still rejoice because we know you're here to help us. You're here to strengthen us. You're here to hold us up with the right hand of your righteousness. Thank you, Father, for a carefree life as we live and walk by faith. Thank you so much, Father, for proving yourself strong on behalf of those that trust you Thank you, Father, for seeing us through. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us. Amen. Let's start in Mark chapter 11 this evening. Mark chapter 11 is the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. His disciples heard him when he said, No man, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. Next morning they come by and they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter calls it to remembrance and, and there's an implied question. There really wasn't anything that he asked, but the question is implied as to how did this happen. Mark eleven twenty two. Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe, that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now Jesus gives us what um, uh, may be, in my opinion, is the most concise description of how faith is to be used and how faith operates. We understand from the principle that he identified in verse 23 that faith is speaking from your heart Believing that those words that you speak shall come to pass. So the principle of faith, where the Bible says the just shall live by faith, living by faith then would be living according to your confession. 
understanding that your confession rules everything. Your words control everything. Now notice in that uh, verse 23, notice the phrase where he says, and shall not doubt in his heart. We could spend a long time going through and looking at what the Bible talks about the heart of man, but he's talking about the inner man. When he says, shall 